Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm Stephen Unu, the K-12 editor here at EdSurge, and the dad to two fourth graders. That last part is somewhat important for today's podcast. It's actually what sparked the idea. So as everyone knows, parenting is a tough job in the best of circumstances. And if you're anything like me, it's been even harder in the age of COVID-19. This shift to remote learning has been a really big adjustment for my kids. And to be honest, it's been pretty challenging for us as well. Every day, it seems like their mother and I wake up to teacher emails that are cataloging overdue assignments, and there's a Google Classroom page that's brimming with new ones. Some days, it seems relatively easy, and other days, we wonder how we're going to wheedle, cajole, and coax another day's work out of them. I came across some recent survey data to indicate that parents across the country are getting similarly invested. One poll from the nonprofit Learning Heroes found that two-thirds of surveyed parents say that they're more involved with their child's education today than they ever have been before. A separate poll by Pearson of parents in its virtual charter school network called Connections Academy found that almost 80% of parents had taken a bigger role in their kids' education. And in a survey by the data science firm Civis, more than a quarter of parents said that they or another family member typically plans the education activities for their children each day. Pretty unsurprising, perhaps. But there's some comfort in knowing we're all in this together. So it got me wondering, now that we're more involved, are we doing it right? Are we too permissive or too helicoptering? Uh, are we too attentive or too focused on our non-child care duties like our own jobs? And are we even communicating with teachers the right way? Basically, what does that ideal balance of parental involvement actually look like? To look for answers, I tapped a trio of experts. A trained online teacher, a 13-year veteran educator who's juggling both work and kids, and an academic who wrote his dissertation on the subject. That last expert is Eric Black. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and education at the University of Florida who studied parental involvement in virtual schooling at the high school level way back in 2008. He says he was drawn to the subject in part because nobody had studied it before. Here's how he described it to me in a recent conversation. We were um, really just um, you know, uh, enthralled with the amount of data that we had access to. And we started to ask some really, what we, I think in education, think of as very basic questions. Uh, you know, if you think about 2008, you could publish volumes about parental involvement in face-to-face classrooms, but nobody had really looked at it uh, in online classrooms. And um, so, you know, it was kind of the opportunity to take a, what was a fairly simple or well-studied construct and uh, port that over uh, into the online world. So for the study, Black adopted a well-known academic model of parental involvement, which is known as the Hoover-Dempsey-Sandler model for the world of virtual education. Basically, that model looks to answer a few central questions around why families become involved, what that involvement looks like, and how it makes a difference in student outcomes. The model takes all sorts of variables into account, including things like a parent's own experience with school, how welcoming a school feels to them, and their family culture, all of which can have a pretty significant impact on involvement. So what did Black discover? Well, for one thing, that old maxim, perception is reality, 
may have a bit of a caveat in this case. And that was one of our key findings is that parents and children have very different ideas about their parents' level of involvement. Parents perceived their involvement at a much higher level than children perceived. And, you know, perceptions, uh, at least as far as we saw, it was really the child's perception that mattered the most, okay? And what the child's reality was translated to outcomes in a positive way rather than what the parent's reality was. As you might expect, parental involvement is usually a good thing. But involvement is far from a monolithic concept. It actually encompasses four separate activities. Encouragement, modeling, reinforcement, and instruction. And some of those activities are more helpful for students than others, as Black explains. You know, it's kind of hard to translate some of the findings from this study in a, in a way that gets uh, into broken up into simple sound bites because one of the findings was you know in in some ways too much involvement's not a real good thing all right so i think it's important to remember that you know parental involvement works on a you know on a continuum from you know no involvement to wow you know turbo helicopter parent and you know somewhere in between is a perfect mix what that right mix is 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 very much an individualized thing so activities like encouragement and modeling may be better for students than instruction. Or in other words, as a parent, reading books and learning new skills yourself may be better for students than reteaching math concepts. But it's hard to say. Black's study was narrow in scope and didn't use longitudinal data, which is important. What we did find is that you know when parents um, were purportedly more involved in their child's learning process, the outcomes were poorer. So if you took that singular soundbite, right, you could run with it and say, wow, you know, parents mess up their kids' schooling. Well, we don't really know that. One thing that's important to remember is we don't know if this is, you know, the if, if this was the chicken or the egg, right? When did the parent get involved is the critical question that we weren't able to ask with this study. And I think that's a critical question that hasn't been asked. Did the parent become involved because they were notified that their child is not passing? You know, once you've kind of dug that hole, it's really hard to dig yourself out of that hole. Or did the parent get involved earlier and because of their involvement, right, they've created a situation where their child is not passing? I don't know the answer to that. So one way that teachers often think of the ideal parent role is as a learning coach or a tutor. And that's how it was described to me by Eileen Hendrano Adao, a national board certified teacher who teaches 12th grade English for Los Angeles Unified. Adao is also a mom to a preschooler and a first grader, which gives her this really interesting perspective on the dynamics of the parent-teacher relationship. So her husband works as a respiratory therapist, and he's understandably busy these days, but that means for much of the day, it's just Adao and the kids. So to manage, she's carved out a routine and a workspace in her kitchen where she can do things like have breakfast with the kids before meeting with students and reviewing submitted assignments. But after lunch, she says, that's when she starts juggling both her students' workloads and that of her own kids. Here's how she describes it. And keep in mind that the weather here in Los Angeles has been really nice lately, so she recorded this outdoors. There's about one to three hours of quiet time, which is journaling and math and um, other like independent activities, which I serve like as a coach and tutor if they need to. My daughter's pretty 
on it but my son needs a little more prodding and cheering on and then after that we um, moved to free play so there's like a, a general structure that I try to follow with them but I try to be really really loose and gentle with myself in terms of like what I could really get done because I'm virtually meeting with my students um, Tuesdays and Thursdays from like 10 to 12. Her daughter's teacher has been trying, but the daily checklist of work can be overwhelming. The most important thing to Adao is keeping her daughter's brain active, which she says can be done with rather simple exercises. Yet every day, it seems there's a new platform to log on to and a bunch of new activities, something I can definitely relate to. Sometimes she says, enough is enough. And I'm like, oh no, no, that's too much. Let's just focus on three things. We're going to do our math in the math workbook. We're going to journal every day. We're going to read independently for 30 minutes a day. And then we're going to do like a science project once a week or something. Something like that makes sense for me and that makes sense for her. And then we still, she asks us to submit like her writing through like Remind, which is texting. And she'll give like some feedback here and there, but I could tell that she's tired too. And she is not trying to do any, she, she tries to meet with the kids virtually once a week and um, it's okay. As a teacher, Adele admits her situation is a bit different. Her students are seniors, pretty close to college or their first jobs, meaning she can expect more from them and less from the parents. And as only one of several teachers that her students see, Connecting with parents can get messy without a single point of contact. So she says they came up with a solution for that. That's been a, a joint effort because we, re we recognized in the beginning that some teachers started to call home or do messaging through our system, but we realized that could get overwhelming because we would be contacting the same student um, over and over and over. So as a faculty, we decided that we were going to do it by grade level teams and identify through like a spreadsheet which students were not logging on and who we are concerned about, whether it's engagement or lack of submissions. And then the counselor in charge of that grade level team or the admin would call them with enough information. So we have like an ongoing log. These days, she says parents are getting involved in new ways, and part of that involvement stems from a general feeling of uncertainty about what their role is and how they can best help their kids. As a team, we notice that there are a lot more parents asking questions, and we've been doing virtual coffee with the principal. So we've had a lot more attendance than we have ever. Like in the past, for coffee with the principal, we maybe get the same 10 or 15 parents, but from distance learning, we've been having a lot of questions and a lot more attendance. So parents are just like unsure on like what the schedule looks like or how much work they're supposed to be doing. Their kids says they have nothing to do. Some of them are bored. Some of them are overwhelmed. So yeah, there's definitely been a change for some of the parents. Not every teacher is adjusting to online learning on the fly like a DAO. There is a small minority that actually teach online full time, even before the pandemic, and I thought they might have a bit more perspective on this ideal parent-teacher relationship. Jacqueline Jeffis is one of those teachers. She was formerly a traditional classroom teacher, but a few years ago she began teaching third grade online for the company K-12 and its California Virtual Academies. Jeffis says that she teaches about two to four live classes a week, and sometimes the small groups to target a particular concept. 
but it ultimately means that she can't plan her students' schedules in as much detail as you can in an in-person class. Here's how she describes it. It's just a little bit more flexibility when it comes to what that looks like um, schedule-wise. So some students may log in and have a live class that starts at 10 in the morning for math, and then they may not have a language arts class till the next day live with me. Um, so then their parents kind of get to structure what that looks like for them afterwards. So are they going to jump right in after math class into their math lesson at home and their online schoolwork? Or are they going to take a short break and do some math work later? So it there's some similarities and there's some differences. But I think the biggest difference would just be that person-to-person interaction. Um, they still have the live teaching with me and they still have interaction with other kids. It's just not in person. So because of all this added flexibility, Jeffis leans pretty heavily on parents to assume this role of a learning coach who guides students, letting them know when it's time to work or time to take a break. Third graders, she says, still need a good deal of supervision, though like the research model that Black used, that comes in varying degrees. Granted, you do want them to sit there and struggle through the work, so you don't want the parent to sit there, and that's something we talk about at the beginning of the year. Um, you don't want them to sit there and tell their student, hey, you need to enter in seven, when they, you know, instead of having them struggle through and figure the answer out for themselves. But there also has to be that line of them still being in the room or making sure that they're checking up on their student, asking and answering those questions like, how did you figure this out? Or did you, show me how you got this, because sometimes, you know, kids are kids and they will not complete the work or maybe they will um, get distracted by something during a Class Connect session. And I think for me as their teacher, the hardest part is making sure that they're engaged during the lesson. At the start of each year, Jeffers hosts an orientation session with students and a separate one for parents using the video conferencing tools in her learning management system. She turns on screen sharing and she walks parents through how to access all the different platforms that students use and asks if they have any questions. She then follows it up with a personal phone call to each family asking what she needs to know about each child in addition to doing quarterly parent-teacher conferences. In our conversation, she told me the key is really figuring out how to engage with families and forming meaningful partnerships. I think that the biggest thing in this setting is reaching out in a way that works for families and also um, making sure that that connection is consistent. It can't be something that you reach out once a quarter for that parent-teacher conference because you really are working hand-in-hand with the parent in this setting. It's not majority teacher. It is I really like to see it as 50-50. They, they're doing so much of that work at home and we're here to support them and help their kids, but um, it's it's a lot of hand-in-hand work together. Uh, yeah, that's probably very generous of you because I'm sure you're doing a lot of the curricular instruction. For sure, but parents are the ones that are taking um, all of that work and doing it at home with them. And they're still the ones that are making their schedules, making sure that work is completed. So normally um, in a normal classroom setting, I would teach a 30-minute lesson and then there would be some individual student work. And I would still be supervising that work. So instead, I'm passing the torch off to parents and they're supervising that 30 minutes of individual student work or however long that takes. And I think that if you haven't had any teacher training, that that's that can be a real task. 
So in a sense, online learning creates a sort of artificial barrier between teachers and students, and asking parents to help bridge that gap is one effective approach. Black, the University of Florida researcher, notes that this distance can be shortened by a better parent-teacher relationship, perhaps through the kinds of outreach that teachers like Jeffis are already doing. This, this psychological idea of the distance between me and my teachers, you know, can be astronomic. Um, and it's something that we've really got to do a much better job of, of trying to ameliorate both with, with students um, and teachers. So long story short, I, I think doing a better job of uh, educating parents about, you know, how they can help to facilitate a relationship their child's teacher would, would go miles to assist students. So I guess what I learned is that parent-teacher relations need to be a two-way street. And that starts with opening a line of communication, even if it's to suggest a new approach or ask for advice. Right now, fostering better communication might be the best thing we can all do in a time of great uncertainty. Both parents and teachers need a clear way to define their roles and ask for help from one another. Because even students and families accustomed to online learning are struggling right now with the effects of the pandemic and the resulting economic fallout. Jeffess says that over the past few months, she's noticed a shift in morale among her students. They can't see family or friends like they used to, and there may be additional stressors at home. And that goes for the family members who help them with their learning as well. It's definitely put an impact not only on the students, but on learning coaches as well. I mean, they have family members at home that maybe aren't normally there. And so they've had to change the structure of what their role as a learning coach is going to look like in a schedule throughout the day. So there has been some changes, even though this has already been something they're used to, there's been changes at home that affect them. And that just might make the simple act of reaching out more meaningful than ever. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we feature real conversations like this one, so please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. My gratitude to Eric, Eileen, and Jacqueline for sharing their time and stories, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. This episode was edited by me, Stephen Nuno, and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Till then. <laughs>